You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hello, thank you for listening. It's Tuesday the 15th of August, Charlotte Greenway in for Nick, and I'm joined today by RTV's Jane Mangan. We'll be joined shortly by Jack Shannon, who looks ahead to a couple of his smart performers with entries this week, before Ruby Walsh is the latest on this podcast to add his voice to the sauna debate. Then Joe Massey of Racehorse Relief shares her concerns over the charity's future, and finally to France for this week's Weatherby's Bloodstock segment. First though, Jane, you were at the Curra on Saturday for the Group 1 Phoenix Stakes where Buccaneiro Fuerte looked very good and I don't think there was any fluke about that performance, was there? No, and I like to see a Group 1 won in a dominant fashion. Now, I read today in the paper that Aidan O'Brien has unquestionable on the easy list after fluffing the stars, banging his head, pulling his shoes off, but... Ultimately, I just wanted to... uh, When you turn up at the races, everything... A good horse tends to to win. And I think Buccaneer Fuerte is a genuine good horse. Uh, A lot has been said in the aftermath about, you know, Adrian Murray, uh, Kia Jurabshin and and Rob Snaguar. And and it is so important that we have new players into the game, particularly in Ireland, for that level of competition. And they have served up competition over the last couple of seasons, which has accumulated in, in what this horse has achieved. He was the first two-year-old maiden winner of the season here in Ireland, and he's done nothing but improve since. And I just thought it was a dominant display. And the way Kevin rode him, it, it's worth noting that Kevin wasn't on him when he won the railway and beat Unquestionable. That was Ross Ryan. So he rode him in the Phoenix. I was wondering, was he going to be trying to just track his pacemaker, how that was going to work? And then it turned out his pacemaker was superfluous because she was at the wrong side of the track and she wasn't even good enough to lead him for very long. But um, Buccaneer Freyte ended up doing it all on his own and he's just a very likeable colt because he seems to have a very good mind that he could do that uh, without taking a lead and settle. So they have their options talking about going up and trip. Personally, I don't see why you go anywhere bar six as a two-year-old and, and worry about next year uh, when it comes along. But that was a lovely performance and it was a it was a real warm feeling towards the connections at the Curra itself because we know for the sustainability and I suppose the attraction to the sport that you need to have good competition on the track and um, that certainly served it up and it is uh, refreshing. Buccaneer Fuerte was the first two-year-old winner of the European season. We're going to have the second one this weekend in the morning but that set the tone for what will hopefully be... Um, you know, uh, a diverse range of good horses in the juvenile bracket this year. And Buccaneiro Fuerte wasn't the only two-year-old to put in a smart performance at the Curra on Saturday. There were at least a couple of others, weren't there, Jane? Oh, yeah. This was one of those days at the Curra where you could have seen a Group 1 winner in a maiden as well as the Group 1 race itself. Um, the first race, the seven furlong Colts maiden, uh, for two of the last three years has provided us the National Stakes winner, Thunder Moon three years ago and last year Al Rifa won it. Well, Diego Velasquez was very much uh, a nursery because Ryan literally from the get-go, from the gates, had to teach this horse an awful lot. He took a lead, but 
he he was literally behind the bridle the entire way and it wasn't until he met the rising ground in the last 200 yards that he really started to assert he ended up winning by around five lengths okay he beat an 80 to one shot and people will pick holes in that but it was probably the manner in which he was so lethargic and green and did a lot wrong and still ended up crossing the line like a horse that didn't realise he was in a race until he had finished the race. Came back into the winner's enclosure like he hadn't turned a hair. And he's a big, scopey Franco. There was a price went up for a guineas uh, quote for next year. I would say Derby all day long. Uh, his brother Broom and Point Lonsdale, they obviously stay very well. They're both by Australia. And I know this guy had a lofty price tag of 2.4 million, but he just seems to have a little bit of a could be anything factor about him and that was that was the Colts race I must mention the Phillies race as well a lilac roller gave seven pounds to uh, Red, Red Verburnum now Red Verburnum the Frankel filly of Moiglers was backed as if defeat was out of the question for Dermot Weldon that was her debut run in against winners um, now credit to Paddy Toomey's filly and, and Aidan O'Brien's for giving them giving her weight a lilac roller and opera singer finishing 1-2 but it was some debut performance the way uh, Red, Red Verburnum hit the line. She's got a Moigler stakes entry, obviously, given her owners. That might be the target, but you wouldn't be surprised if any of the first three were quite smart there. And That was before we even got to Cherry Blossom winning uh, the sixth furlong maiden. She's a big known-in ever. She won very, very well. I think she by five lengths. So that day at the Curra was a uh, free entry. Um, I think the bookmakers covered... The, the cost of the entry uh, for patrons there was a huge crowd there thank god the weather played ball and it was just a thoroughly enjoyable day that was that was what a group day group one day at the Curra should feel like and hopefully we can continue to build on that now and talking of smart two-year-olds it looks like your bet with Nick is still very much on between the two of you because City of Troy and Alangalang have both been given their group one entries how are you feeling about it now confident or a little bit worried I'm happy, Charlotte, yeah. I, I listened to Ollie Bell's interview with Aidan O'Brien for The Sporting Life and uh, he mentioned that they're both on target for Champions Weekend and, you know, it's not a mistake that I picked the race that was half an hour before the other race. <laughs> so if, if, of course, the national stakes was first, then I'd be scuppered because City of Troy looks like he's he's absolutely awesome. But I also think that city is, is very special as well. So, um, yeah, hopefully they both get there now and... I don't think uh, I don't think McDonald's will cut it. Jane, there's one race in particular that catches the eye this afternoon, and that's the 250 from Deauville, the Group Two Pre-Dornano, where we'll see the current favourite for this year's arc, Ace Impact. He's currently available at around three to one on, but he faces a couple in there with some high class form. He does, but the the Dornano is always a good race. Uh, it's never been won by an Irish trainer, so Joseph O'Brien will hopefully. Uh, make, an, uh, make an impact with uh, Al Rifa, but Ace Impact is justifiably top of the market. Uh, the last to first run in the Prix de Jockey Club, I've heard people say that, oh, they just went too fast up front and Big Rock didn't sustain it and it set it up for a closer. I don't really subscribe to that. I think I think this was genuinely a very good horse and I think Big Rock just didn't maybe quite stay, but the others were beaten fair and square. Um, he's four from four, why can't he improve even further? He's the first uh, crop of cracksmen. He's all very exciting in, in all those regards. But I suppose it's, it's Jean-Claude Rouget's, um, I, uh, the words he spoke about, uh, the way he spoke about him 
after the the Prix de Jacques Club, which was quite eye catching because. Jean Carouges had such so many good horses, and he's brought some of them to this race. He brought um, previous Jockey Club winner Al Manzor to win this race before he went and won the Irish Champion Stakes. He brought Al Al Hakim here last year, the horse that went on to be fourth behind Alpinista in the Arc. So he has, uh, I've tried and you know he 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 does bring some very good horses to this race. I saw Al Rifa in the paddock before his seasonal debut at the Curra back in July that was in the international when he was well beaten by Al-Riffa the third horse Alfred Munnings has been beaten subsequently I do think Al-Riffa will improve farther run but he'll have to improve extraordinarily to get near uh, Ace Impact and I read in today's paper that Victoria Road had had a setback and obviously we haven't seen him since he won the Breeders' Cup in November so Aidan O'Brien's expecting a lot of improvement from him and to be fair they're the, the only Three that I can realistically see being making an impact at Group One level, and if if anything else were to win the race today, I'd be surprised. That's not um, disrespecting them in any way, but like you have you have three Group One horses, Group One winners there, and let's see what they can do. But Ace Impact is extremely exciting. We're at that time of year now where everybody's looking towards the arc. I know we talk about it in April, May, but we kind of talk about it tongue in cheek. You've got the whole season to to, to work towards, but. Uh, this is probably Ace Impact's big uh, next big step towards October, and let's see if he can pass it with flying colours. Yeah, and I'm just looking at the arc betting now, and Ace Impact is around the five to one favourite. Next in is Hookham at eight. What do you make of the three-year-old allowance they get in the arc? I know we always talk about it from a Phillies perspective, but from a Colts, is it an advantage? Yeah, I don't actually have a strong opinion on it because everybody talks about um, the Phillies record in the race. I I wouldn't be the person that I, I wouldn't have a big opinion on it. I'd imagine somebody a little bit closer to the to the core of the arc would have a better opinion than I. But it's it's all about ground when you get to that stage of the year. You know, Hookham handles handles it. You know, Westover feed the flame. I have an awful lot of respect for him after his uh, Grand Prix de Paris win last time. And after that, you're you're talking about horses who are subjective to whether they'll ever get there. Uh, Desert Crown, Emily Upjohn, uh, Luxembourg. But uh, there's a couple of horses that I'm interested in. I thought Onesto ran a very good race in the Marois over an insufficient trip uh, at the weekend. Uh, I'd love to know what's happening with Videni. If, if last year's second in the race is likely to make it back after two disappointing runs this season. And it'll be interesting to see if we can have uh, a German Raider. We know their record in the race is is very, very strong. And I know Fantastic Moon got beaten last time in Munich, but anybody who watched that race knew that they went an absolute canter. William Buick just dictating from the front. It wasn't a true test at all. I think a Fantastic Moon is better than what we saw there. And whether he could go and make it interesting for the German party as well it would be would be fantastic. But there's a lot of racing to come. Um, but Ace Impact, well, let's watch him today and see if he can justify his favourites tag for uh, Europe's best race. Yeah, and just on Ernesto, I totally agree with you. I thought his run um, at the weekend behind Inspira was really eye-catching, and he's 66s. I did speak to Fabrice Chappé, what would have been six weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and he said, you know, the arc is, is hardly a target because he's very much a decent ground horse. So uh, if the weather's on side, he could be a big price, but uh, the chances of that happening is probably quite low if the pass is anything to go by. Well, we, we've had uh, w- the wettest July on record here in Ireland. I'm not saying you guys are getting it at home, but uh, it's it's been pretty dismal. And I also thought I might um, catch a fish by saying 
the arc is Europe's best race, but you didn't. You obviously agree. <laughs> well, it's uh, some of the listeners are like, "What did she just say?" Fo- following the King George, it might have uh, this year's King George. It might have a bit to live up to, but um, certainly at this at this point in time, it's got potential. Got potential. I love that. Well, there's a couple of classy races at Salisbury tomorrow and Jack Shannon joins me on the line now who's got a runner in both of them. Jack, starting with Carnarvon in the Upavon Philly Stakes, she's run some cracking races this season. She was fourth in the Guineas, third in the Oats. She finished sixth, not beaten far at the Royal Meeting and then was only beaten less than three lengths in a seriously hot Nassau Stakes at Goodwood. She's not the biggest filly, but is she one that takes her racing really well? We've, we've sort of spaced their races out uh, reasonably well sort of uh, this 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 season and um you know she proved last year that you, you know she had a a bit of a, a busy sort of um, middle to end of her campaign and she took her racing really well if, and if anything she thrives on it and she's really come out of goodwood goodwood in good form she seems to be bouncing um you know she just just did a real light piece of work there the other day and 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 really pleased us and we thought you know there was a couple of options abroad but you know if this if this race had a had a group three above its name you know we probably wouldn't have been thinking about anything else and she escapes a penalty for winning the montrose last year so it seemed an option um that we that we couldn't miss you know and tomorrow's a mile a quarter on decent ground if conditions stay the same is that ideal for her I think so, but I still believe that she does. That she will. Um, she will get a mile and a half. Um, I think um, uh, the problem with Goodwood the other day is they walked round um, and they turned it into a sort of a two furlong sprint. And you know, Nashua made up a little bit of ground, but otherwise everyone sort of stayed where they were. Um, you know, they they, they took a, a length out of her when they quickened, and then they never got any further away. So it was a real uh, unsatisfactory race from a trainer's point of view because. Even though she's run a cracker, you, you know, it, it it didn't really pan out the way that you'd hoped. Um, but I think, a, a, you know, a strong field of sort of 12, 13 runners um, should be a nice even pace. And I think that should suit her down to the ground. Yeah, and you mentioned 12, 13, I think 13 declared. Um, what do you make of the opposition, obviously, running lines in there? And she sort of could be anything. No, 100%. She was extremely impressive when she won um, her Oaks trial at Newmarket. Uh, and it, nothing went to plan for her in Shanti. But John Gosling's <laughs> proven time and time again he can get them back to, 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 to top form. And I'm, I've got no doubt he will do again. She looks, she looks high class, but um, she's got to give us three pounds. And she'll have to be very high class if, if, if we get all the luck and, and, and we, we turn up. You've also got the two-year-old Metallo in the listed Stonehenge Stakes. He won his maiden at Salisbury and then went to Newmarket for the superlative. What did you make of his run there? Yeah, no, I, I was pleased with his run in superlative, even though it didn't look too good on paper. He was a big baby, which he proved um, when he when he um, when he jumped a shadow and nearly came down at Newbury first time out, and then he showed uh, obviously a, a marked improvement when he won at Salisbury. And I think it was just all a bit too much for him still um, at Newmarket. The ground was pretty bad that day. It was it was soft, horrible ground, and he's a very very good moving horse. So I think back on a sounder surface, up to a mile, will suit him um, down to the ground. Um, we've got a decent draw in one. We should just be able to jump and get a nice toe round. And look, there could be a very good horse in there. You know, you've got some extremely well-bred horses uh, for some um, for some big teams. But um, he's a very nice colt, and I do think he's up stakes class. You had a big handicap winner at Goodwood with Johan in the Golden Mile. What's the chances of you landing another one on Saturday for the same owners with Ingratore in the Great St Wilfred at Ripon? 
Well, um, I'm, I, Ingrid Tull's been a horse I've been really excited for all season. I've had to wait and, and bide my time. Um, he's a horse that uh, that it gets is very sensitive to the pollen in the spring, to tree pollen, all seed rate pollen, and everything like that. So he's a horse that I, I we couldn't really train um, in the spring, and and we got him back going um, sort of uh, after all the pollen had died down in the middle of the summer, um, and he's been he's been in great form. I was desperate to run him either at Goodwood or at Ascot the week before Goodwood, but he's very much top of the ground horse. Um, and we won't, we won't run him when there's any um, sort of soft in the description. Um, and if the ground stays good, then obviously Ripon could be a good option, but there are some other options at York the week after. Um, he, like I say, he's in great form. As long as the ground's decent, I'm sure he'll go, go to wherever he goes and run a massive race. And just, you mentioned his reaction to pollen there. Is that something that you'd figured out this season or is it something you'd learned from last? A little bit from last. Um, I think if you look at his form from last year, he put up an absolutely outstanding performance um, when he won on, uh, I think it was the, either the Craven or the Guineas meeting. Um, and then his form dipped um, afterwards. And, and, you know, after looking into it a little bit further, we figured out that, you know, that the pollen, uh, you know, the pollen can affect all, all of the horses, but certain horses like, like humans, you know, can affect, um, can, can affect certain people more than others and he's one that is is very hypersensitive to any sort of dust or, or or pollen or anything like that so you know we took the decision with with the owners john and julia who are extremely um you know positive and and being proactive in these types of situations and we decided to give him the the spring off and then bring him back for a sort of summer uh, high summer to, to autumn campaign but obviously we want the ground so it's not as straightforward as as, as, as what you like it to be and you mentioned the ground will be key to his participation on Saturday, otherwise could be seen at York. Have you got anything else at York lined up? Um, off the top of my head, I'm sure we'll have a few, but nothing uh, nothing that, that's springing straight to my mind at the minute. I'm sure we'll have a couple of couple of horses uh, ready to rock and roll for there, maybe the odd maiden or something like that. Um, but obviously a few of the big guns have run, run of late. Um, you know, Johan won't go to the to the handicap because he he'll be running there with a six pound penalty and he's uh, gone up three, so it will miss that big handicap with him and we'll look elsewhere. Um, you know, we'll we'll have the odd one, but nothing nothing that, that that currently springs straight to mind. Well, a hot topic recently has been that of jockeys saunas on racecourses, and Ruby Walsh joins me now to lend his voice to this issue. Ruby, the topic of saunas on racecourses, it's hot in the press in both the UK and Ireland. They were closed and removed in many cases during COVID times, and now jockeys are calling to have them back. We heard from jockeys Neil Callan and Tom Markwin on this podcast last week, making their arguments as to why saunas are a crucial part of a jockey's working life. Wilf Walsh of the RCA also had his say and cited medical evidence as well as financial costs as reasons why they shouldn't be reinstated. First off, where do you stand on this? Uh, where do I stand? I suppose I was part of a generation in Ireland anyway that always envied our colleagues in the UK who had saunas. So I was part of a generation that fought to nail with Irish race courses to get saunas installed at every Irish race course. I would never have allowed them to close were I still riding. But it, look, I'm not riding, so it doesn't have much consequence in my life anymore. Um, I can't ever say that I will again be in the sauna, but I use them on a, as a professional tool. Um, and I think they should be there. Now, I didn't necessarily struggle with my weight. I used a sauna on occasions where I would have to shift a couple of pounds and they worked very effectively for me. But 
I was part of a generation that didn't have saunas in Ireland. I was part of the generation that drove racing in sweatsuits that had to sweat before they went racing. I completely understand the difficulties that the riders are facing right now. And to me, it looks like out of sight, out of mind. Um, so if jockeys are not dehydrating on the course, it's not the responsibility of those in charge. So out of sight, out of mind, we'd allow them to do it elsewhere, which to me is not the way forward. I think saunas should be available on race courses. I think losing weight is part of a jockey's life and it always will be. It doesn't matter, Charlotte, how high you rise the weights. You can keep raising the weights up and all you will do is encourage heavier people to lose weight and try and become jockeys. Um, that, that That is what will happen. And I do think to move two, three pounds, it is much easier to do so in the shortest period of time before a race as possible. The least amount of time you're dehydration, dehydrated even, to me was always better. Um, I hated having to sweat before I went racing and therefore had to travel a couple of hours dehydrated or they else doing it in the car on the way racing that was no way enjoyable um sweating is not enjoyable full stop what am i talking about but it is part of jockey's life and on occasion when you do need to move a few pounds having that facility on the race course was a major plus so i i don't i don't i understand this the medical the science behind it or the medic the medical reasons behind it it's not good for you but you are talking about adults I know apprentices might be under the age of 18, but everybody else is an adult. Nobody has been forced to become a jockey. Nobody has been forced to make the decision that they need to lose weight. People are doing it by choice, and people will do so by choice, whether it's on a race course in the sauna or they have to do it before they go. So I think making it as easy as possible is the way forward. I don't accept Wilf Walsh's argument that it's to do with finances. Um, I think that's, uh, I won't even go there as to what I think about that. Uh, should we be seen then, do you think, to be educating the jockeys, especially the younger ones, um, on how to sweat sort of effectively and safely? Yeah, but I think that's trial and error for everybody involved. It's like everything in life. How do you learn that the cooker is too hot well most kids touch it then they realize it's too hot they don't touch it again um trial and error is how most people learn everything in life you learn from every mistake you make i suppose um but look in a in an ideal world it would be simply you watch your diet you do enough exercise and you are the weight you are but people will take a few more pounds off that if it means getting an opportunity to ride a winner to get a ride to achieve the dream that jockeys are chasing. So yes, you can maybe make it part of the curriculum that you learn and understand what is safe for your body to lose and for you to still be cognitive, I think is the correct word. Um, But yeah, I'm sure you could do it that way. But I think it's trial and error. I, I learned over time what I could lose in a session i suppose for the want of a better way of putting it um i could lose a couple in the bath before i went racing and left the last two pounds and when i got to the races you do start to learn about your body and what it can what you can achieve what way you can make it work and but that becomes a little bit trial and error and um every no two humans are the same um some people sweat much more freely than others and 
you know, I could watch some people lose four, five, six pounds in a sauna. I never could. Two was about as much as I could shift. But that's just everybody's body is different. And um, I do think that taking them away is is kicking the problem out of sight. And I don't think it's solving the issue because the issue is never going to be solved. Dehydration or sweating. I mean, dehydration is the fancy word for it. It's sweating. Jockeys will always sweat. Shed a few pounds, do the weight they have to do, put it back on. I was lucky and I could maintain my weight at a very uh, level standard level i suppose i would i varied very little maybe two pounds from my lightest to my heaviest every morning and was on a diet to keep it that way but therefore i knew when i had to i could shift three four pounds off that on occasion when i needed to and that was true experience and age and, and time and, and i suppose trial and error but i would i was look i was against the removal of the saunas i don't think it was a progressive step forward i think pushing guys and girls back into sweating before they go racing is a, is a retrospective step. And, yeah, I would put them back in. And I was lucky in a sense that I was stable and I didn't have to sweat every day of the week. But mm-hmm. I could also watch colleagues who did. And I watched people who were reliant on saunas and who struggled, and who were struggling even more so without them. And I'm probably... It wouldn't have made a massive difference to my career as I got older, whether it was on us or not. But it would, have, it would have made a huge difference to my colleagues. And this is where all jockeys have to stand together, not just for themselves, but they have to look around the world at who does need them and who doesn't need them. And it's, they, have, they can't just speak for themselves here. They have to look at it as a collective and realise that some of their colleagues are struggling more so than them. They have to stand together as a group. But that's the PJA that are there to represent their views, aren't the they? The PJA they're... are only a, an organisation. It's just the members don't stand up. The organisation is only the organisation. The members have to stand up and be heard. It's no good just saying the organisation is standing up. The members have to stand up and be heard to form the organisation. But have the organisation stood up? I think that's probably another argument. I don't know. I was only ever a country member of the PGA. Um, I was always rode an Irish license, so I was part of the Irish Jockeys Association um, whilst I was riding. But um, it doesn't matter what association it is, be it a union charlotte in uh, a hospital or an office block. If the members don't stand up and become part of the association, the association might as well not exist. Jane Mangan's back with me and a key issue facing racing currently in the UK is that of the gambling white paper in the UK and in Ireland it's the gambling regulation bill that's gained some increased media attention over the weekend as key racing stakeholders have been voicing their concerns and acting on this. Jane what's this over and what are the likes of some of the Irish trainers doing about it? We'll go back to the start. The gambling regulation bill is something that has needed to come into this country for quite a while. And it's been on the agenda of not only this government, but a previous, the, the previous administration as well. Um, what's concerning is the wording and the regulation, sorry, the restraint that would, it would have on um, ad, betting advertising during daylight hours from 5 a.m. to, what is it, 9? 9, 9 p.m., yeah. Yeah, so that would essentially slash the revenue of the the likes of a racing TV or Spy Sports Racing when we all watch it and we, we can see what their advertising is. Um, so the Minister for State, James Brown, whose constituency is Wexford, which would be 
the heart of National Hunt um, uh, racing down there. He's over 40 trainers down there that have added their name to a petition. And I can see in the racing or the Irish field at the weekend that Paul Nolan voiced his concerns that it would be the beginning of the end of racing. But basically what we're fearful of here is that if this bill came into power or into force as it stands, that Racing TV and Sky Sports Racing would find it unsustainable to bring pictures um, to Ireland because their 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 advertisers couldn't um, actually promote on on this platform in this country. So what we could end up having a situation where yes, we can broadcast pictures of Irish racing abroad, but you can't do it internally in our own country. Which not only does that scupper our ability to market ourselves, but to you have ultimately no products. You end up having no interest in racing if people can't see it. And why would an owner have a horse in a country where they can't see the horse running unless they go to the races themselves? So there's a number of things at play here. So it's already past the committee stage. This isn't something that's happened overnight. And I saw some um, wording on, on social media during the week where we're sleepwalking into oblivion. We're not sleepwalking into oblivion. Everybody here is very, very acutely aware of the implications of this bill, but we're being encouraged to lobby our own local TDs and our own local senators because they're the ones that can enforce change um, rather than going to basically the the sky, moon and stars as regards making noise. Um, We're hoping that will be listened to in, in regards government and the Minister for State himself, James Brown, will be all very aware of, of our concerns and the industry concerns at this stage. And I'd imagine higher up the hierarchy than you or me, Charlotte, are doing their best in, in this regard as well. Um, they're, they're encouraging the Minister to look at the structure of the, the bill that came in to force in the UK and in Australia, which have exempt, exemptions which would that, that allow these TV channels to work um, in the commercial environment that, that, that are already working for them. But I suppose it's a case of the, the doll, which is our government, obviously, they have current, they're currently on a break. They went on a break in the second week of July. They're not back in uh, sitting until September 20th. And this is when it'll hit the floor of the doll and that's when it'll be debated. And that's when you'll really see the headlines over here. At the moment, the TDs and centres are currently on recess. Um, so it's not that it's gone to ground. It's that we have to, I suppose, be mindful of how we time these things. And at the moment, the doll is currently on recess. So there, it is not a case that we're sitting on our hands and hoping for the best. I think we're just trying to take an approach that will be as... Uh, effective and as uh, tactful as we can. Just picking up on an article by Chris Cook in the Racing Post yesterday regarding the funding difficulties faced by the retraining and rehoming centre Racehorse Relief in Cornwall. Their founder and chief exec, Joe Massey, joins me on the line now. Joe, just first off, can you give us a bit of background on Racehorse Relief and the work that you do? So um, we've been running for 12 years, um, based down here in Cornwall. We, um, we started off on a really tiny farm which we rented which had a few acres and um the vision was to have a couple of horses and help them out but it's kind of snowballed quite dramatically and uh we've since bought a 
an old um, working farm, which we've converted into having great retraining facilities. Um, we can now house 30 horses, um, which, you know, started off that we could house five, I think. <laughs> um, and um, and to be honest, we're, we're pretty much always full. Um, there was a spell where we were full and we had 10 horses on the wait list. So um, the feeling is that there's, there's a need for what we do. We take... Um, we take horses direct from training, but we also take a lot of horses from private homes where people are, you know, they've, they've got horses either off the track or through other means and they're, they're struggling with them for whatever reason. And what sort of things will you do with them day to day? Um, so we aim to for all the horses to work every day. Some of them um, are under rehab for injuries or, um, or behavioural issues. Um, which means that they might do a little less. They might just be doing, you know, some pole work or working on the lunge or just hacking out if they've had a, a leg injury that requires them to just stay in straight lines for a minute. Um, myself and my head rider both come from an eventing background. So we do tend to, um, you know, have that in mind when we're retraining the horses. So when, when they're the finished article if you like ready to be rehomed we'd like them to be able to school to a certain degree and if appropriate jump um to a reasonable level before finding a, a new home and so this process of retraining these horses why is it so crucial for thoroughbreds why can't you know they sort of just be rehomed straight out of the racing yards i think it's quite there's there's sort of a two-pronged thing there's it's quite a culture shock for them when they've been in a large training yard they've had lots of other horses around and life's been very busy um some of them adjust really easily and can go into a private home where there's maybe only one other horse um but for some of them it just takes a little bit of a transition period they've got muscles in all the wrong places for other jobs and um so you know sometimes they just need a bit of um turn out and just to you know completely relax and and we change their feeding regime and everything and um and just show them a, a bit of life really you know um they're generally very good with things like traffic but some of them aren't used to going anywhere on their own so they have to learn to you know go out hacking on their own and 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 things like that and sometimes um the ones that have raced a lot taking them to something like a horse show for the first time they can anticipate that they're going racing and get quite excited and you take them a few times and they and they get used to it and kind of go oh actually you know we're just here for spotted dressage or whatever um and it's just you know going through that process with them so we see our job as the sort of transitionary period between the two jobs so that um they you know learn to be a, a leisure horse if you like rather than a racehorse and up to now, I think we all know that horses aren't cheap to look after. How have you funded this charity? So up until now, um, I've been fortunate enough that I've actually got a share in a software company and I've used my profits from on that to fund the charity. Um, unfortunately, the profits aren't high enough at the moment. Um, so I'm unable to use that resource. Um, we've never had any funding from... Um, anywhere else really we had um we had a grant from the peter o'sullivan trust to help us build our stables but apart from that um we've, we've been self-funded going forward then what other funding methods are you hoping to to use um well we've got a few irons in the fire to try and encourage people to um 
to support us. Um, we're launching um, a sponsor and eventer campaign, which is aimed at, at racehorse owners, really. Um, we feel that, you know, if they've enjoyed the, the thrill of, of having a horse in racing, that perhaps they don't feel so inspired by the fact that, you know, um, you know, Karen from down the road is going out, plodding around the lanes. And um, so, you know, we've sort of said, you know, would, would people be interested in sponsoring a horse to go on and have have this particular career, um, which would be cheaper than keeping a horse in training, but um, but not that cheap. <laughs> <laughs> um, we obviously, you know, uh, do all the other sort of normal type fundraisers and hold clinics and and open days and things like that. But they um, they they're not lucrative enough when you're overheads are so high obviously the thoroughbreds as you said aren't aren't cheap to keep and they're no cheaper for us to keep than they are for the trainers to keep in training they still require a lot of feed and bedding and hay and people to look after them and just for anyone who's listening to this now and wants to help out and donate how can they go about this so um if they want to donate there's um there's a donate button on our website um which takes you to paypal or um or they can drop me an email and I can give them bank details. If they're local, we have um, collection pots at all the local sort of saddleries and and um, f- farm shops. And your website is racehorserelief, all one word, dot org. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Jane, we've just heard from Joe Massey there of Racehorse Relief, and it's an incredibly important part of the racing industry, isn't it? Um, you know, it's really important that we find these horses as good a home as possible after their racing careers are over. Yes, win, lose or draw, despite uh, the level of talent a horse has, they should all have a future beyond the racetrack. And that is that is basically for the sustainability of our sport. We need to ensure that that happens. Uh, there were some good st- news stories at this side of the water in that regard this weekend after we all saw Kate Harrington and Sizing John on all of the social media platforms and the papers and everything over here. It was so great to see him back in that capacity, um, the triple gold, gold cup winner for the Harrington family. But Jessica Harrington actually had a 1-2 because Jamie Buckley rode Woodland Opera to finish second. And... Um, Mika Wallace, a horse that none of us, I certainly haven't heard of us, heard of him, but not many people have. Stephanie McGlynn finished third on him, the Irish national winner. And last year's Dublin um, show winner, General Principal, was fourth. And Gold Bullet was five. So there was a big uh, entry for that race, I think, or for that competition. 20 horses in it, including Duvan, Penhale, Super Sunday, Max Dynamite, some very uh, familiar names, Borough Saint and... Balco de Flo and some less familiar names as well but it's things like that I think they deserve all the support and funding that they can get we've got a, a fantastic um, set up over here with Troella they are um, helping the sustainability and, and finding homes for these horses and finding suitable partners for these horses and I don't want to sound naive I know not every horse is suitable for rehoming we have that we had that here with our own Monty's Pass who he wasn't suitable for riding after his racing days but we kept him ourselves and that isn't that isn't possible for every horse but we will try and make it make it possible for as many horses as possible so uh it is something that going forward we 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 should have always been uh very aware of it but now it's not only a case of being aware of it but making it happen and um yeah that's something that we should never forget about (music) 
Well, we spoke about French racing a little bit earlier on, and now we're heading back there with Nick. Hi, Charlotte. Yeah, it's Tuesday, so we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their Global Stallion app, and their excellent Stallion book. And if there's one Stallion that's made an even deeper impression this season than perhaps you thought possible, it's Wooten Bassett. The big money transfer to Coolmore a few seasons ago. Where did he start off life? Well, he started off life as a Stallion at Nicolas de Chambord's Arad d'Etraham. Nicolas, fourth-generation custodian of this famous stud in northern France, and the man who also raised and produced Buccaneer Fuerte, Wooten Bassett's latest Group 1 winning son in the Keeneland Phoenix Stakes on Sunday. So, Nicolas, double congratulations. Yeah, no, thank you very much. And, uh, and of course, yeah, we, we, we talked uh, together, I think it was three or four years ago, just after uh, Wooten Bassett had been uh, sold to Coolmore. So... Um, it's been uh, it's been a good year, it's been a good few years, and it's great to bring another Group One winner. Um, you know, by him, you know, he's been such a great horse, uh, uh, good horse to 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 us, and um, and we, we we bred that horse on the farm for for a great uh, long term client of us. So uh, he's been a great supporter of Australian. So so no, it's good, and uh, and uh, you know, it's it's great competition to you know, to beat those those top class group you know, group one horses at two. Um so no it's a, it's a great achievement. It's been a it's been a great weekend. And what do you think it is that has that's made a horse like Buccanero Fuerte? Because Wooden Bassett seems to have some sort of a, a magical cross with, with his dam, having already produced Wooded, the Breed Labe winner, and beat Le Bon, who was a pretty smart horse for Richard Hannon. Yeah, yeah, well I mean he's uh, that cross seems to be a bit, you know, to have something a bit of a of, of, a, of a magic, uh, you know, elusive city on on um, on Wooten Bassett that uh, you know uh, in breeding in Mr. Prospector. Um, but the horse himself, I think he, you know, he always was, uh, you know, very athletic, uh, you know, a, a great mind, and I think that, that that's those, those Wooten Bassett. That's what makes them top top class horses because they're so. They're so relaxed. They're able to, you know, take their racing, and 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 they can carry that speed, you know, without doing too much. And um, and I think, you know, the, it's funny at the sale because sometimes, you know, those horses that that, that are a little, I, I shouldn't say light, but they're just athletic. But some sometimes at the sale, people like those horses that have more strength and and body substance, but. Uh, we can see that sometimes that's that, 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 that's actually be too much, and they don't stay sound, or they take more time. But he, you know, this horse was the perfect example of a race horse, which is not completely a sales horse, and 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 we we could see that on his on his price tag at the time. Uh, and you've got his his half sister by Dubawi going to the the Arcana sale this this week. I mean, you must have huge expectations on her. Is she very very similar to look at? Um, she, she she's got yeah, yeah she's got that good length that that, that the mare throw uh, you know being by Elizabeth City uh, she's she's got a bit more bit more class she's a bit more feminine um, but uh, but she's also an athletic filly so so you know some similarities to to her brother and obviously being by Dubawi uh, you, you know she's she's a you know she's yeah she's a great great filly to have in in, in our consignment. And and we often see you know uh, a big operation like big breeders that that are looking for those hard cross fillies uh, you know for, for for a long term plan and and to breed from them. So I hope she'll you know she'll sell well and I hope she'll go to to a great uh, a great team. 
Now, last time we spoke, Al Manzor was just beginning to cover some mares and, and you had great hopes that he could be the successor to his own stallion, Wooten Bassett, with you. How do you assess his, his brief stud career to date? Well, the, the main thing is that he's, he's, he's shown that he's capable, capable of, of, uh, of throwing a really good horse. Uh, you know, which 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 is what we what we're looking for, really. Um, I think we 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 have to adapt a little bit the type of mare we we've sent to him because he's throwing a lot more a lot more um, size and physique than Wooten Bassett himself, and 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 that has you know leads some of his progeny to to take to take a bit longer and 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 be be effective over over, over a bit more distance. So the breeders have adapted. And then we've adapted also the sort of broodmare uh, we sent to him, uh, going for more, uh, you know, a bit more speed and a bit and and mares with with uh, a bit less size basically. And I think we we're starting to see that now. So so I hope we're gonna you know with that that adaptation is gonna is gonna do do a bit more and and be a bit more effective with his two year old. Nicola, I know you've had City Light this year who began his stalling career with you in 2020 and his first crop of two-year-olds are doing brilliantly well, eight from 19 in Europe, the highest ratio of any stallion in the top 10 first season size and a, a son of Sayuni. I'm excited to know how you think that uh, Hello Yumzain and Persian King are going to get on with their first yearlings at the sales uh, in the in the next few weeks. Are they Are they well represented? Well, they're very well represented. You know, they've got uh, 20... Between 20 and 25, uh, each of them in in, in the cell, we, you know, which shows the quality of, of mare that has been covered, um, and you know, obviously two different uh, profile. Uh, Helium Zane was something a bit different for France when he when we retired him because he was a top top class English uh, sprinter, um, you know, by Kodiak was a great star, star and and he's been really well received, um, and he should bring something yeah, a bit different, you know, for France. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really excited to, to see his two-year-old next year, just to, you know, to see what, what they can do. And Persian King was one of the best, you know, son of Kingman. He was a champion minor, and he, and he carried that, that, that quality of a, of a 12 curl on, you know, being a great third in the arc. I like the fact that he was so versatile in, the, in his career. Um, and, uh, and you know, but you know, when we sold Wooden Bassett, you know, the plan was to you know, invest in, 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 in great stallion prospect and, and we're lucky to, to do so with the, with those two stallions. Uh, and and so we have, you know, I think we, we're entitled to have great, great expectation with those two. Because, again, you know, when, when that void is is left, you, you wanted to use that opportunity. I suppose it was important to kind of, to make the most of that rather than to sort of just say, well, that's great, we've got a good price, we'll never replicate that. Yeah, no. The, the plan was not to to get out money and 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 go and retire on on a beach and do nothing. You know, the, <laughs> you know we we here for, for 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 the long term and and you know we thought he was he was he was going to allow us yeah to reinvest in in stadium, obviously in mares in 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 infrastructure on on the farm and we bought that place where we do now the the pre training and spelling. So it was uh, you know it was it was there was a plan behind that and. And uh, and um, and we've got some, you know, we have Ernesto who who's going to retire next year. Who was a great force yesterday in the Jacques of Mawa. Um, 
you know, as a, as a prep race for the for the Irish Champions Stake. We we own part of a son of Lopere Vega called Bovatier, who we unbeaten this year, uh, and he's going to target the Jean-Luc Lagarde uh, in the autumn. Um, so you know, we're just trying to you know to find the right horses to to continue and 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 and, re- and, and yeah, keep reinvesting in in Steinman Prospect. Uh, Nicola, thanks so much for talking to me. Um, best of luck for the rest of the season and particularly for the sales this week. Yeah, no, thank you very much. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah, we look forward to the, to the weekend, yeah. Jane is still with me. And Jane, as your final contribution today, have you got a tip for us? Yes, unusually for me, um, why after Dundalk? Um, the afternoon meeting, not an evening meeting, features an apprentice maiden over seven furlongs at 2.40. And I like signatory for John Murphy and Connor Stonewatch. I hope... He can make his third time lucky in The Apprentice Maiden at 2.40. Thanks to Jane and thanks to all my guests today. Nick will be back with you tomorrow. Thank you for listening. That was episode 808. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.